Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in Secaucus, New Jersey, where I am participating in the WSOP.com Winter Circuit Online (laughs) event. I love how they just have to keep coming up with new and exciting names for all the different poker tournaments. It looks like they are going to have a circuit event every single month. So if you guys thought that last summer's shenanigans cheapened and diluted the value of a bracelet, imagine how these rings are going to be diluted. By the end of 2021, we'll all have one, or at least one. Uh, Anyway, I hope so. I'm here to play in some ring events, and I will certainly be looking out for interesting hands to share with all of you. Uh, Speaking of sharing, today I wanted to share with you an email that I received from a podcast listener named David Graham on Twitter. He's dgram918. His bio says he's a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan. So, uh, David, first of all, before I even read your uh, your tweet here, let me just first wish you luck this weekend as the Bucs are playing the Saints in the NFL divisional round. So, uh, but of course, this is not a sports podcast, so enough about that. Hey, Clayton, regular podcast listener, love the show. I credit Tournament Poker Edge with making me a much better player over the years. Please don't ever stop putting out content. All right, let me stop right here, David. I'm going to keep doing this podcast until Derek fires me. So that's it. All right, you have my word. Doing this podcast has been amazing for me. It's been over two years now since I took over as host of this podcast, and I'm so grateful to uh, the powers that be here at Tournament Poker Edge, mostly Derek Tenbush, but there are others. But Derek was really the one who decided to take a chance on me and give me a shot at doing this job, mostly because he is just too busy and important with his other business ventures to keep up with it himself. So, uh, yeah, I'm not going to stop anytime soon. I feel like it's made me a much better player. It uh, has made me way better at broadcasting and all the media stuff that I'm interested in. And most of all, and this really should be number one on my list, I love interacting with people just like you, knowing that our website is helping you improve your game. Uh, You know, it just means the world. So, I'm I'm glad that you're a member and I'm glad that you're a listener. So yeah, don't worry about me <laughs> not putting out any content anytime soon. Uh, David goes on to say, I was hoping to get your opinion on shorthanded play in tournaments like five or six max. I've been playing weekly in Tunica and all the tables are five-handed. It seems like a different game to me. Okay, so let's talk about shorthanded tournaments or shorthanded play within a tournament. Now, the nomenclature that I use is kind of old school. I realize that 
first position, second position, just distance from the uh, big blind. But in shorthanded play, it's actually more helpful to think the, the other way, the button, the cutoff, the hijack, the low jack. And if you're shorthanded, that's all you're going to need. So what a lot of us do is just kind of have the same range from the hijack at a shorthanded table as you would have from the hijack at a full table. And especially in the early stages of a tournament, that will serve you quite well. And you can pretty much get by like kind of using those same pre-flop ranges and playing the game that way. But I have a feeling that what David is struggling with, as probably many people who are now playing in casinos, but they want to keep the table shorter just because of the uh, coronavirus and everything, as the blinds and antes increase and as the pressure mounts for you to try to keep up with the average stack as you're getting closer and closer to getting into the money, it may be helpful to lean towards being more aggressive. So in other words, if you have a hand that might be in a, in a mix, like half the time I would raise with this, but the other half of the time I would fold it, you might want to just go ahead and push that to 100% raise. And the reason for this is simple. If you are playing a low stakes daily tournament in Tunica, Mississippi, against players who don't really understand shorthanded strategy, the mistakes that they're most likely to be making are of the folding variety. So I would, all things being equal, against a field like that, I would probably be more inclined to attack those blinds because players don't really understand the effect of having a shorthanded table on your stack. So now you guys know uh, a lot of you like to make fun of me because I still think in terms of M, but this is where M really comes in handy. Like counting your big blinds is not nearly as useful to the tournament player at a five-handed table as calculating your M. So I don't know what kind of tournaments they have there, whether it's a big blind ante or whether every, every player pitches in the ante, but whatever it is, you need to divide your stack by the chips that are in the middle as the cards are being dealt. And that number would tell you how long you could survive, how many rounds you could survive without playing another hand if the blinds and antes didn't increase anymore. So looking at that number and knowing what your M is should really drive your decision-making and how desperate you should be to take a risk. So if you stick to just you know the top 10% or top 15% of hands and your VPIP at a five-handed table is only around 10 or 15, you're basically going to get blinded off before you can make any noise in the tournament. So keep that in mind. Try to tweak your pre-flop ranges and strategies based on the fact that your blinds are being eaten alive much faster than they otherwise would if you were playing eight max or nine max or you know some tournaments we play especially in the WSOP in the past have been 10-handed. So obviously 10-handed you can wait a lot longer for a hand than you can five-handed but a shortcut might be to just say well this is my range from the cutoff if I'm in the cutoff at a full ring this is going to be my same basic range and then maybe beef it up just a little bit depending on how much of a turbo you're playing so I hope this helps David I really appreciate your 
taking the time to send me a message. And if you would also like to send a message on Twitter, it's at Clayton Comic. So far, I'm not a victim of cancel culture, and I'm still alive and well on Twitter. <laughs> so I look forward to hearing from more of you at Clayton Comic strategy in just a minute here but first i wanted to highlight a few things that are going on around the gambling world first off uh the grudge match between doug polk and daniel negranu has definitely gotten more interesting in the last week or so as daniel has mounted a pretty substantial comeback at one point he was down about a million dollars and earlier this week he was down only a little bit less than 600,000. So that makes a big difference with about 10,000 hands left, which is a lot in the high stakes match. Daniel is still very much alive in the second half of the challenge. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how this thing wraps up. If Daniel is still within striking distance of Doug toward the end of the match, will he go for broke and take a lot of big risks to try to eke out a win at the buzzer because I'm sure that Daniel has a lot of side action himself. Perhaps more importantly, a lot of his friends have wagered large sums of money on him to win versus Doug. So that's what I'm looking at as far as that goes. Um, Doug gave Daniel a shout out this week on Twitter. He said that Daniel is playing way better than he was in the beginning and, uh, you know, it seems like they are continuing their love affair. <laughs> you guys know I had a, a lot of fun with how civil they were towards one another on the uh, first 200 hands that were played on Poker Go. That was certainly not what any of us expected with all the trash talk uh, that they do, especially Doug does on Twitter. But, you know, we talked about this before. Now it seems to have even bled over into Twitter. So yeah, it's one thing to have to be really nice to a, a person's face, even though you may have trashed him behind the scenes. Now Doug is actually being nice to Daniel, even on Twitter. So uh, that's just the kind of world we live in where I just don't know which way is up anymore. Everything is upside down. And Doug and Daniel are like best buddies at this point from all the hours that they've spent together online. Uh, so that's what's going on with that. Other big news... Online gambling is apparently going to be a thing in Michigan very soon, which would open the door for some more poker, online poker to be played uh, around these United States. So I'm keeping an eye on that. Um, I've been watching High Stakes Poker on Poker Go, and I'm enjoying it a lot. It'll never be what it used to be, right? It's impossible to compare it. Because we're not the same as we were back then. We've all seen a lot more poker than when this show first came out. But it was so iconic. To me, it was Maury Escondani's crown jewel of all of his creations poker-wise. This show, High Stakes Poker, is so good. And the new version, I have to say, it brings me back a little bit. And it, if you haven't seen it yet, I, I definitely think it's worth taking a look. It's amazing how editing a cash game down to the most interesting parts <laughs> is, uh, yeah, go figure. It makes for good television. Yeah, enough about that. I want to get into a hand that I recently played on ACR. But, you, well, you know what, guys? I, I do want to mention one other thing. You guys know what a fanboy I am for Andrew Brokus. Uh, I have a, a picture of him 
in my closet. No, I'm just kidding. But I do love Andrew so much, and I think that he's an amazing poker player, obviously. But he's also a really good teacher, and he has a video series that he put up just a few weeks ago on TPE. It's a $50 ACR tournament where he all he tells us at the beginning, because he, he knows some people like to be, they don't want to know what exact place he finishes, but it's a deep run. And I can tell you that it's a, let's see, it's a six-part series where Andrew really breaks down all the hands he played and, and how he played them, whether he should see bet, in the style of Gus Hansen's epic book, Every Hand Revealed, which if you've never read it, even today, it's a really good read. You can go back and, and go with Gus through every hand that he V-pipped in the, uh, I guess it was the 2008 Aussie Millions. I might have the year wrong, but it was the year that he won the Aussie Millions main event. And it's really interesting to have sort of that driver's seat position get inside the mind of the poker player who's making the decisions and ask yourself, would I have done what Andrew did in this spot? And would I have seen this thing that he's pointing out to me now? And what I love about Andrew's style is he has a perfect blend of understanding GTO. And in several instances during this video series, he actually picks apart a hand using the help of Piosolver which I still don't know if I'm supposed to pronounce it P.O. Solver or P.I.O. Solver. It seems like my friends are 50-50 on the proper pronunciation. Um, and so he'll use that, but he'll also use what I guess we're calling exploitative play. That's not exactly right, though, is it? It's just, I mean, GTO is exploitative, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be an effective strategy. Uh, but when he would deviate from the GTO strategy as he understands it, he tells us why he's choosing to deviate. This player, I noticed, folds too much in these spots. So even though the solver would say, I should not bet here, I'm going to go ahead and shoot for the, the bluff because of that. And it's things like that. So he really helps you understand how to be a well-rounded poker player uh, one who understands GTO, but also knows when to kind of steer away from it and look at a hand in a different way. So to me, these series where you can really just spend some time with Andrew and listen to him explain what he did and why is just worth so much more than what you would actually end up paying for a TPE membership. So if you haven't already, please get on that. It's the best thing you can do for your poker career in the new year. Speaking of which, I did lay out some goals for you guys recently, and as you can see, I'm already hitting some of them really hard. I'm here trying to play my 2,000 tournaments and trying to get in all of my hours of study as well. So we're already halfway through January, and so far, I haven't completely abandoned my New Year's resolutions. So here's a quick hand that I played in a $30 ACR tournament. This event has a $50,000 guaranteed prize pool. This hand takes place after the close of registration and prior to getting in the money. And, and we've only been at this table for maybe an orbit or so. And in this hand, we are in the small blind with ace 10 off suit. The blinds are 1,300 and 2,600. And there is some kind of bizarre 
ante. Let me check and see exactly what the uh, <laughs> the ante amount is. Okay, Leah, it looks like the ante is 315. So these are bizarre numbers that you'll never find in casinos. 1300 for small, 2600 for big, and everybody puts in 315 just to keep it nice and weird uh, before the deal happens. So uh, the action folds to the cutoff who makes it 6500 and he's got about 160 as do we so the average stack at this point is a little over 100,000 so this gentleman i assume he's a gentleman because his name is a name that would normally be used by someone with him her pronouns so let's make that assumption and so he opens to just a little more like a 2.5 right yeah that's 2.5 times the big blind and so he's got 160 and so do we the button folds and the action is on hero clayton in the uh, small blind with ace 10 offsuit okay so let's kind of talk about a few things first uh the big blind is one of the chip leaders with almost 300,000 in his stack so uh he will not be afraid to get involved with any type of hand if we call and price him in. Uh, taking a look at this, there's a little less than 7K in the middle before the hand starts. So we have an M of about 22, 23-ish. So another way to look at it and the way that many of you would prefer to look at it is that we have about 60 big blinds with our 160,000 chip stack so no matter how you slice it we're in great shape here one possible approach especially with these unknown opponents would be to just call and see a flop i think ace 10 is too strong to fold to a late position raise uh in this situation even though we don't really have reads on our opponents we have a very strong hand for the situation so folding is out of the question it's really between calling and three betting. So let's take a moment here and figure out the pros and cons to our two realistic options. Uh, obviously, shoving is out of the question. So if we three bet, we're going to make a small to medium three bet and basically assume control of the pot. So I would make it about three times the amount that the original Razor made it, which would give him some incentive to fold but in position he'll probably end up calling with a lot of the real hands that he chooses to open here and given that he's in the cutoff he should have some junk as well and he'll probably fold some percentage of it but mostly i'll expect to be playing a pot from out of position another way i could do it is go for a much bigger like maybe a five times his bet to make it something like thirty thousand. And then I'd have a lot more fold equity. But the downside of doing that is when he calls, I'm going to have an SPR of under three with ace 10 against a, a player who raised and then called a very big re-raise. So th that really strengthens his range in a way that I don't really want to. I feel like a smaller three back can be called by worse. Uh, also, any raise will discourage the big stack, big blind from participating in the hand and i think that that's desirable because there's already plenty of dead money 
in the middle between the uh, big blind and all those antis. There's over 5,000 right there. So that's not nothing when we're sitting here with 160 in our stack. So certainly a strong case to be made for three betting here. And I think three betting to a medium sized amount, something like three times the original raise feels right to me. And we already said we won't be folding or shoving. So what about calling? You know, I don't really hate calling. I think that it's okay to have some calls from the small blind. The problem is you do tend to cap your range by doing that. Like would I really ever just flat with ace king here? Would I really ever just call with pocket queens? I don't think so. It doesn't feel like something that would be in my vocabulary. I don't know if you guys are doing that at all. So it kind of feels like I have a hand like ace 10, ace jack, maybe a small to medium pair that I'm going to be set mining, but really takes all those premium hands out of my range. And then that makes it pretty easy for a talented opponent to outplay us post flop. So if you are going to call here with ace 10, you also need to mix in some calls with very strong hands as well, just so it's not so easy to exploit you in the long run. Uh, also, as mentioned, calling invites the big blind to come on in. And I don't know how excited I would be to play ace 10 offsuit from out of position versus two opponents who have me covered. So I think it's pretty clear that my opinion is we should three bet. So let's see what I did. Yes, I did three bet. I made it 18,000, which is just a little bit less than three times the original raise to 6,500 and the big blind folds as desired and the original raiser just calls. So we will see a flop in this pot. We have about 140,000 left in our stack and there is now about 40,000 in the pot, which gives us an SPR of about three and a half, which is not desirable. I think that if I could go back in time, I would make my raise a little bit bigger Maybe if I three bet to 20,000, I can get that SPR down to three. It's just a little bit uncomfortable when we flop a pair of tens or even a pair of aces. The stack's a little bit too big to be happy to stack off with three and a half times the pot on the flop. So then we have to do some kind of weird pot control checking on a street where we might normally want to bet or possibly like under betting in a spot where we might want to make a, a standard bet, you have to compensate for the fact that you're trying not to get pot committed. In other words, if all these chips go in with the stack to pot ratio that I've given myself, I will almost certainly be behind when the last chip goes in. So we don't like to set that up, but it's not the end of the world. We can certainly keep the pot manageable unless our opponent decides to get really aggressive and then we might have some tough decisions, which is why I now wish in retrospect that I had raised a little bit bigger. Anyway, with 40,000-ish in the middle, the flop comes. King of hearts, seven of hearts, five of diamonds. So king, seven, five with two hearts. And hero has the ace of spades, ten of clubs. A complete whiff <laughs> here for us. We missed this flop completely, but especially when you take the bull by the horns preflop, you want to really think about range versus range, not the actual two cards I'm holding. Ask yourself this, king seven five with two hearts, is this a better flop for the three better 
than it is for the original Razor who called the three bet in position. Well, while it's certainly possible our opponent could play a hand like King Queen, King Jack this way, maybe even King 10, it's unlikely that he can beat a king, and it's very unlikely that he has the best king, which would be ace king. So I think that we have a range advantage on this flop. We should have a lot of big pairs with our three betting range, and we should certainly have all combos of ace king. So for that reason, and the fact that I don't have anything, I decide to turn my hand into a bluff here on the flop. So how much to bet? Well, what would I bet if I had ace king, pocket aces, or even a set of kings here? I would bet less than half the pot, but enough to try to get a little bit of value for my hand and also some degree of protection from straight draws, flush draws that may comprise at least some portion of villain's range. So I went ahead and bet 16500 into the 40000 pot. And I like this sizing. It still gives me plenty of wiggle room. It addresses that SPR issue we talked about earlier. By not betting much larger than this on the flop, I still give myself plenty of maneuverability, even if this bet gets called. So my opponent flats, and now there is about 74000 in the pot, and we have about 125000 behind. So... Before we talk about the uh, turn card, let's talk about what we can glean from the fact that our opponent called on the flop. Now, I think many players would assume, well, he's probably got a flush draw or he's got a draw. It feels like when we get called, it's often like the made hand versus a draw confrontation that seems to dominate heads up pots. But actually, a lot of his range is also hands that have some kind of showdown value or possible even potential showdown value. Maybe if he has something like ace 10 himself with the ace of hearts, he may call and see what I do on the turn. Never assume that your opponent isn't floating. He might be floating. What do I mean by that? He might just be waiting to see what comes off on the turn and what I do. We all know the value of position. Well, a big part of that value is that you get more information than what your opponent gets before you have to make a decision. So many players would call with little or no showdown value, but possible potential, say a hand like pocket sixes, right? It's not a good flop for sixes, king, seven, five, but there are cards that could improve my equity on the turn if I have sixes, like, you know, the one that did, the nine actually improves pocket sixes because now you add a gut shot, plus the fact that your sixes could actually be the best hand, as we know they are this time. You throw in the fact that Clayton only bet 16,000 on the flop. I think you have to call at least one time with sixes and see what happens. The fact is that marginal made hands are a bigger part of our opponent's range than slow playing monsters and even flush draws are. So I think that's what we're up against a lot. And for that very reason, I'm looking to double barrel on a lot of good turn cards for my range. So I think I I forgot that I hadn't said this yet, but the turn is the nine of clubs. 
So our board is now King seven five nine with two hearts. And the action is on Hero holding Ace of Spades, Ten of Clubs, no pair, no draw, no nothing. And to me, this really boils down to one question. Are we giving up or are we going to go three streets as a bluff a lot? The only time I wouldn't is if uh, an ugly heart like the Queen of Hearts or something came on the on the river. That card might slow me down. But if we bluff here, we have to be willing to empty another clip on the river. And the reason why is because, again, so much of villain's range consists of those medium strength hands that just can't take the heat, especially not when we're the pre-flop three better. We should continue to represent that big hand a lot. Now, you might say, well, Clayton, you start this pot with an M of 23, 60 big blinds. Why do you want to take this kind of risk in this situation? You're uh, stack is well above average. You know, why donk it off? Or what's the other uh, thing that people say? Spaz out like that with just ace 10. Why don't you just give up? The reason why is because the flop is so much better for me than it is for my opponent. Even if he's sitting there with King Jack, how many calls does he have in him? Now, some people can call three times with King Jack, but a lot of people, I know this from experience, bluffing for many years. They won't. Even if the solver tells them to, they just won't. They'll say, you know what? Just take it. I'm clearly representing that I can beat King Jack. I have Ace King Plus is kind of what I'm saying when I bet three times on this board. So because of that leverage and because of the fact that I have a range advantage and a nuts advantage and every kind of advantage you can have except for position, I'm going to be the one applying pressure on boards like this. Now, like I say, if an, uh, if I don't like the river, I can always abandon ship. But when I bet this turn, if I choose to bet this turn, I need to be willing to follow up with another barrel on 5th Street a lot. So, let's see. Did I bet this turn? Yes, I did. And now, again, there was 74,000-ish in the middle, and I fired out 38,000. So, just under half the pot here on 4th Street, and opponent folded. So, kind of key takeaways here. If you're going to 3-bet from the small blind, you should take the mindset of looking for boards that favor your range more than they do that of your opponents, and then apply pressure accordingly. Well, that'll do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Please do follow me at Clayton Comic. Some of you still haven't shared your New Year's resolutions. I'm interested in what you guys are trying to do poker-wise this year. Feel free to hit me up on Twitter at Clayton Comic. And do yourself a favor and check out Andrew Brokus's latest video series for TPE. You will learn so much, I guarantee it. So for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you all so much for listening. One that's on her heart Oh, 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 oh
Everybody, everybody, no, she can't read a mouth. Oh, the 